Hello and welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime podcast. I'm Bob Jakes, editor of Sea Trade Maritime Review, and in this Learning from Leaders episode, I've been talking to ABS Chairman, President, and CEO Chris Wernicke about the challenges and opportunities currently in focus for the classification community. We talk about future fuels, cybersecurity, the Greek market, and much more in the conversation that follows. I started by asking Chris when we return to a greater degree of normality how he thought the shipping industry and indeed the work of ABS may have changed. probably facing four challenges. And obviously the virus is one of those four changes, but there was a lot going on before the virus kind of hit us at the beginning of this year. Let me talk about those four changes. One, you've had the level of market uncertainty and unpredictability that we've all seen. And you know that's against the backdrop of continued economic growth, but that's been a real change for the industry and how to deal with that. Second, you've had the regulations, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the impact of the environmental regulations going forward. But, you know, the regulations have in many ways become much stronger shipping shapers than we've ever seen before. And then the other change is technologies. And it's not just new technologies, but it's the rate of change of technologies. We've never seen that before. And you put on top of that the virus. And, you know, the virus is bringing with itself a new norm. We are not going to return clearly to where we left off in the early part of this year. The the virus in many ways has extended our line of sight. It is as much an accelerator and catalyst. And I think that's very important going forward because everyone has had to adjust. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think with those four changes comes four challenges that we're all basically collectively working right now. The first challenge is this journey to low carbon shipping and the fact that it's not going to essentially require one solution, but it's going to be a set of hybrid solutions with hybrid mindsets, hybrid skill sets. Then on top of that, you put the value opportunity of decarbonization, which is digitization and the speed and scope of that, which is not consistent throughout the industry. But that's also a challenge. And then obviously coming from a a classification perspective, the third challenge is just really recognizing the unintended safety consequences based on where we're going with both these pathways of decarbonization and, and digitalization. And then finally, the fourth challenge is people. We cannot forget people as we move forward, because quite frankly, Bob, at the end of the day, in any sort of digital and sustainable era, Culture is probably more important than results. We cannot lose sight of the seafarers. Quite frankly, we can't expect the seafarers to absorb any sort of digital mindset without proper training. And we have to always recognize we're always enamored with technology, but technology has no common sense, has no instincts, and we need to recognize people. So when you get to all of this, We at ABS started offering remote surveys, not this year, but actually in 2019. What digitization has done is it's really kind of obviously pushed it forward. And the pandemic has created just the practical nature of this. But I think that in general, things are not going to go back to where we left off. I think remote surveys and quite frankly, remote audits 
are going to be with us. And I think as we move forward in this new norm, we're going to see kind of a new balance going forward. As we look at what this pandemic has done, it's allowed us to kind of take a step back and really look at bringing together cloud computing, sensor technology, computer power, data analytics. Not only has it been an enabler, it's kind of forced digital to be an enabler for class, but in many ways, it's really set the foundation for the next generation of class. That's why this pandemic is, like I said, is more than a disruptor. It's a catalyst and an accelerator for change. Thank you very much, Chris. That's a great answer. And it also provides us with a bit of a roadmap for some of the things we're going to be discussing in more detail, I hope, in this brief conversation. So you've mentioned a few points. Let's pick up on one of them. After technology, you specifically talked about digitalization. And indeed, accelerated digitalization in general is seen as one of the positives of the pandemic. How has this been reflected in ABS's service offering to marine and offshore operators? And at the same time, how are you helping safeguard against increased cybersecurity risk that comes together with that, and particularly as required or recommended in amendments to the ISM convention, which I believe are coming into force in January already? Like I said, Bob, this virus has brought digitalization essentially to the center stage. We're very fortunate because we started kind of our own digital journey, quite frankly, as a classification society about four years ago. We had begun to recognize that the importance of this technology, both in terms of our safety mission and how it was going to help us deliver that safety mission. So as we moved into this year, we really just continued to move forward with a very keen eye on our safety mission, begin to bring a lot of our products and services together to the industry forward that had a digital technology backdrop. I'll give you some examples. Last year, we introduced a family of uh, smart notations, which we really helped us as we extended this forward in terms of looking at products and services relative to digital. We did a lot of groundbreaking work, which we brought forward in terms of condition-based classification. You know, remote surveys in many ways is kind of a first step towards condition-based classification as the industry begins to address the challenge of moving from essentially calendar-based surveys to condition-based surveys. Also, we were able to bring in sensor technology, cloud computing, data analytics, be able to develop systems that we were able to feed off of uh, information that was coming from the vessel. We developed a very new product right now called My Digital Fleet, which is probably the first predictive risk management program available where you get information from the vessel and you take a look at everything from structural health monitoring to machinery health monitoring to emission controls. We've looked at using simulation technology right now to help assess alternate fuels. We're looking at 3D plan review, where we're embedding our rules in to improve the process of going forward. All these things really are being driven by uh, the focus on um, digitization and the importance that we pay to that going forward, not just an enabler of current class, but really, again, like I said, is really driving the next generation of class. Let me talk a little bit about cybersecurity since you brought it up, because that's very important. We at ABS believe, and we actually pioneered this. Uh, in fact, when I was chairman of IACS, the first thing I did was set up a uh, essentially a cyber panel 
to kind of complement the structural machinery panels because I knew that cyber going forward was going to be the next generation of safety system. It's the safety system you can't see. You know, as an industry, we traditionally are focused on the ones we can see, the ones we can touch and feel, the structure, the machinery. But when you get into the world of cyber and cyber safety, you know, you're talking about safety systems, complexity of cyber-enabled physical systems. You can't see them. And I think this is going to be very, very important, especially for a classification organization with their safety focus to really lock in on that. And the other thing that we noticed in the area of cyber is, listen, cyber is not only becoming more synonymous with safety, it's becoming more synonymous with security and reliability. Cyber is not just an IT issue. It is very much an operational issue. In addition to meeting the regulatory requirements, and that's why I brought up the importance of ISM, because you'll see ISM now being the framework for a lot of things coming in, cybersecurity being one of them, but safety issues responding to the pandemic, you'll see a lot of things beginning to kind of link into ISM just because of its nature. But some of the services that we have brought forward in the area of cyber has been our our award-winning risk assessment methodology called FCI, which is short for Function, Consequences, and Identities. It's a dashboard in real time where we can help owners understand threats and vulnerabilities based on different operational functions to essentially develop a cyber score. We've worked very hard with different governments to develop cyber certification capabilities and notations and so forth. But cyber is going to be very important going forward. It's going to be that next generational safety system. Everybody needs to be locked in. It is going to change in many ways our mindset. It's going to redefine our ship to shore interfaces. It's going to really, really play at the heart of even kind of in some ways redefining class to some extent because, you know, class is kind of built to play at the intersection of regulations, technology, and safety. Cyber-enabled physical systems are complex system systems that require interfaces with owners, with yards, with equipment manufacturers. This is class the sweet spot. So this is an area I think that you're going to see a lot more activity going forward. And I think it's an area that clearly foundationally plays in support of digitalization, but data governance, data management, data security, you've got to get that right before you begin to get advantage of all the other things that digital technology brings to bear. You flagged up earlier the scope and extent of regulatory change. I guess one example coming over the horizon pretty quickly is concerns ship recycling. And I believe certain jurisdictions are going to be requiring the carriage of an inventory of hazardous materials as soon as next year already, if they're not needed at the moment. Can you please elaborate on this and explain class's role and responsibilities in preparation of such documents? We're very active in this area, but I will tell you that IHM, in many ways, again, it plays at that intersection of regulations, technology, systems and equipment and safety. Our focus has been on uh, unintended safety consequences. As you see this develop, especially as we work our way towards the deadline at the end of this year, this is going to become more than just a compliance issue. This is going to really impact in many ways behaviors and mindsets going forward. I mean, there is going to be a life cycle impact of this. And I think that, again, what we're doing in the area of class, doing the uh, the certifications, in fact, we just 
finished 100 IHM certifications remotely, by the way, for a very, very large chip management company. I see that, again, when you go back to culture is more important than the results, I think the focus on IHM and the direction where it's going is going to essentially fall into that category. And it's going to a successful IHM program, Bob, is going to require essentially be a team sport. It's not just class society certifying. It's going to be really a a team sport between the owner and the class society because it does impact everything from uh, systems and equipment. Again, focusing on unintended safety consequences, and this is going to be very important. And I suspect over time, this will also to some extent have some impact, quite frankly, on uh, asset values going forward. So it's a big deal, but I think this will ultimately be more than just a compliance issue. I think this is going to kind of begin to change behaviors and mindsets going forward. But of course, the big challenge, and you've referred to it earlier, many would say is decarbonization and the ambitions of IMO, the 2030 and 2050 reduction goals. I believe ABS is pretty keen to play a leading role in this effort. For example, you recently became a founder member of the Maersk McKinney Moller Centre for Zero Carbon Shipping. Can you say a little bit more about this and other decarbonisation work that ABS is undertaking, particularly in light of the recent MEPC decision to introduce an EEXI and other short-term carbon reduction measures for existing ships? There is no question that today, all eyes in this industry, and it's one of the kind of the changes and challenges, are on basically 2030 and 2050. Someone asked me the question recently, can shipping go green? And you know, my answer was, listen, it is going green. In fact, we've already started that process. If you look back uh, several years ago, we've introduced EEDI, we've gone through SEMP, now we're doing MRV, we've looked at the IMO sulfur cap. So we've already started on that process. The new regulations that you've talked about is now just basically going to impact our speed and scope. I think the outcomes of these new regulations, as we look at in terms of uh, CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas emissions, is clearly going to give us a clearer line of sight and probably a greater call to action. But I think the interesting thing, Bob, going forward is that going green is going to be clearly a team sport, and it's going to require all stakeholders in the supply chain to work continuously, because there's not going to be a silver bullet. We've seen this in some of the work we're doing in some of the outlooks. When I talked about a hybrid solution, it's going to require several things. One, we talked about digitalization, but Going forward, decarbonization and digitalization will cross over and they will work together because digitization is going to be the value opportunity for the decarbonization solutions. Second of all, when you look at decarbonization, when you look at meeting the IMO requirements, it's going to basically take some combination of four elements. It's going to take, obviously, a focus on alternate fuels and energy sources. It's going to take technology improvements. Technology now is going to be linked greater to trade routes. It's going to be linked to people. It's going to require greater focus also on operational efficiencies. And you're going to have policy. You've already seen this happen with discussions that have come out of the EU in terms of cap and trade. So it's going to take some sort of combination of these four things 
going forward in order to meet the requirements. So that there is no one single solution. I think it's going to be a lot of people working together, owners, yards, equipment manufacturers, class societies, charterers, even fuel suppliers. Everything is really going to have to work together in order to be able to meet these requirements for 2030 and 2040. And let me talk a little bit about those because we've done a lot of work in this area. We published our first outlook last year, which was a groundbreaking outlook. We brought a lot of things forward. I think one of the biggest things that we brought forward at that point was that the 2030 requirements, and again, everything is based off of 2008 reference point, you can actually get there through a combination of LNG as a fuel, just-in-time shipping, and speed optimization. But in our first outlook, uh, we really kind of reached a conclusion that it's going to take a little bit more work to hit 2050. In the second outlook, we began to really explore fundamental pathways and looked at the linkage between alternate fuels and trade routes and looked at different other scenarios. And and we found out that, uh, you know, you could actually extend yourself and meet the 2050 requirements relative to uh, CO2 emissions, but you still had some challenges relative to uh, meeting the greenhouse gas emissions. And obviously, it just really began to focus on those pathways and what was needed in those three kind of pathways that we presented to the industry going forward in terms of the uh, light gas pathway that started with LNG and worked its way eventually to hydrogen, the uh, heavy gas pathway that started with LPGs and and alcohol and worked its way to ammonia. And the third pathway was, uh, you know, biofuels and working the way to second, third generation. We began to identify starting points. And of course, when the Maris McKinney Center for Zero Carbon called us, as a, we saw common purpose and common mission between what we were doing and what the center was doing. And that, you know, we're very excited to be able to be part of, again, that center going forward as we begin to look at kind of what are those pathways, what are those practical pathways going forward relative to different combinations to get us there? So this search for cleaner energy and decarbonization, what effect is this going to have on the offshore oil and gas market, which is, of course, somewhere that ABS has always been heavily involved, and indeed on the tanker market and perhaps the future of LNG as a cargo as well as a fuel? What I've seen in my 30 years is quite interesting. In many ways, in general, the offshore technology space has kind of historically led marine technology. And so I suspect it's begin to kind of bring several things together. You know, what we've seen in the offshore space is as you look at whether it's next generation rigs for deep water or shallow water or even next generation production units, they to some extent will have to also comply and take advantage of uh, both uh, decarbonization and digitization going forward. We actually laid out what the 2050 fuel mix will look like in order to meet these requirements. And surprisingly, 40% of it was still oil-based. You know, if you looked at that kind of global fleet in uh, 2050, probably about 40% is still oil-based, about 35% is going to be some form of ammonia and hydrogen, you know, about 10 to 15 percent LNG, and the rest will be some sort of mixture of biofuel and and methanol. So 
oil-based scenarios are still going to be with us. It's just that they're going to be less relative to the kind of that composite mix that you need to drive down kind of global CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. On the offshore side, obviously, uh, we're focusing a lot on wind as a renewable. But I think what you're going to see in this pause, because one of the challenges that the offshore industry has is aside from the pandemic, you just have a price of oil is also kind of set in. So all of us collectively, I think over the next several years are in one big time out as we kind of begin to sort through how things work. But I think that the offshore industry will be a huge beneficiary of digitization in terms of as you move forward to the next generation, again, of rigs and production units in terms of driving operational efficiency. I think the tanker market, and by the way, we talked about LNG. I believe clearly LNG will be a transition fuel in this uh, journey as we move from carbon reduction to carbon neutral to carbon zero. So I think that's uh, going to be very important as we move forward. You got to get there, I think, through LNG. And, and LNG has been very interesting because any alternate fuel you look at, it's got to kind of go through the same scenarios as LNG going forward. But I think when you look at next generation of rigs, whether it's shallow water, whether it's deep water, you will clearly see a greater focus on uh, digitization, depending upon their movements. They also will be required essentially to follow the IMO greenhouse gas requirements. And I think on the tanker market, we see right now that they themselves, as we look at next generation of tankers in terms of whether we look at different alternate fuels or quite frankly, we even look at kind of future proofing. We've seen different scenarios. We've actually certified ammonia ready tankers right now. We've looked at the impact of different fuels on tanker cargo arrangements, engine room supplies and so forth. But I, I think the most important thing to take away is our 2050 outlook does not completely zero out oil-based fuels. We see that in 2050 we'll be there with obviously different combinations of alternate fuels. And if you had one particular future fuel that you would like to draw our listeners' attention to as having a great potential. Is there any one? I, I hear what you say, that there's going to be no silver bullet, no um, one-size-fits-all solution. But is there one fuel that you think will repay greater attention and research than currently happening? You know, Bob, like I said, the challenge going forward is that you're going to have a breadbasket of choices and the choice, including oil, by the way, but I think the choice going forward is going to be very much dependent on operational preferences and on trade routes. So I don't think you can signal out any particular fuel. I think what we have done is basically laid out that there are three very clear pathways to get us there. And we've talked about it, the light gas pathway from LNG to hydrogen, the heavy gas pathway which kind of runs LPG alcohol to pneumonia and the biofuels and synthetic fuels pathway. So everyone kind of start with one of those pathways. And then depending upon, again, operational profiles, trade routes, the industry will make their choices because like I said, there's no one silver bullet. And I think the mistake that a lot of people will make is to highlight that one silver bullet because I think this industry from that dimension is going to change and begin to recognize that it is a hybrid combination of 
solutions, technologies, impact of policy. You know, one of the things that's very important is that going forward, the IMO requirement is not a ship requirement. It's not ship specific. It's really a company specific requirement. So there'll be much greater emphasis on managing fleet profiles and actually managing kind of ship profiles. And I think this is very important. So Bob, I can't tell you whether there's, you know, one particular fuel because there just won't be. It's going to be a mix and it's going to be driven by many things. Okay, thank you, Chris. That's clear. I'd just like to um, ask a question relating to the Greek market. Many of us would have been involved in the virtual events that Posidonia held a few weeks ago. And of course, uh, Greece is the largest ship-owning market in the world. And ABS has a particular historic relationship with Greece and indeed recently has opened its Global Ship Systems Centre in Athens, and indeed it has a Hellenic Technical Committee, and your Global Director of Sustainability is, I believe, a Greek national based in Athens. So could you please comment on this strong Greek focus uh, of ABS's work and what strengths it brings to your service offering? Greece and ABS, we have had a very, very special relationship. Quite frankly, I think it's one of the strengths of ABS. In Greece, we are the number one class society. Well, we have the number one uh, order book share from Greek owners. But as you were talking about, this is not by accident. ABS is committed to Greece. We continue to make investments. In fact, our Greek office is probably the only other office in ABS where we have actually duplicated all our world headquarter capabilities in our Greek office. Our, our Athens team is incredibly talented. You've mentioned the system center where we've been able to model and simulate the complexity of existing systems, impact of new technologies, so valuable for our rule development process. And to be able to have the feedback from the Greek owners, that that practical operational feedback has just really helped us. We put now recently a sustainability center in Greece, that's ground zero for us. You know, we are really kind of globally driving directionally where we're going and with all the alternatives there um, in Greece and that sustainability center. And, and by the way, it is one of four. We have sustainability centers. You mentioned Copenhagen. We have one in Copenhagen. We have one in, in Athens. We have one in Houston and we have one in Singapore. You know, I spent a little over two months last year living in Greece running ABS out of Greece. That will tell you how important Greece is to us. You know, I basically uh, spent a period of time and essentially ran all of ABS's global operations out of our Greece office. And, and quite frankly, when the pandemic is over, I'm really looking forward to going back there and to seeing our friends. And it goes back, I think, obviously, to World War II and the Liberty ships and, and that history is well documented and so forth going on. But we've just enjoyed a special relationship. We have held some classic technology forums at the Nearchus Center. Just last year, we held a forum where we had uh, Union of Greek ship owners, MIT and Chevron, really begin to talk about where digitization was going. And in this case, you know, kind of impact on the operations. Several years ago, we had a groundbreaking LNG forum where we had the top three Greek owners in the LNG space. Along with myself, it was uh, moderated by uh, Michael Tusiani from Potent, really brought some unique insights and awareness. So 
Greece is, again, very special. It is, in many ways, kind of ground zero for the global uh, shipping industry. And uh, we have really enjoyed the ability with our technology base and, and our insights to be able to gain from the experience that the Greek owners are generating to really improve not just ABS's products and services, but you know, to kind of begin to extend our safety footprint globally. And perhaps if I can just add one more, and that is to ask the Middle East market, your operations there, is there much crossover with the Greek market? Are they part of the same region or is there a different reporting structure? The way we're organized in ABS is uh, the Middle East market, because of its importance, kind of directly comes straight up to senior management, just like the Greek market. You know, we have enjoyed also, a, and we've been very fortunate and in many ways just, just very fortunate to, to have enjoyed a strong presence in the Middle East market. Our Middle East market historically has been driven by our offshore leadership, both in terms of offshore supply vessels, rigs, and so forth. But because of our number one leadership position in LNG, that has fueled continued investments into our Middle East operation. We enjoy a a very strong footprint. We have engineering capabilities and very, very strong practical operational capabilities in the Middle East. And as we extend ourselves, beginning to uh, work with uh, some of the uh, Middle East national oil companies, some of the big owners, especially in this area of digitization and decarbonization, we are looking at the Middle East as one area where we will continue again to invest in terms of bringing our capabilities to that region. I think one of the things, Bob, that the pandemic has done, is, it starts back with your first question, is what the pandemic has done is really show the importance of very strong regional and local presence. And you know, we are fortunate enough to have a very strong base in the Middle East, as well as in, in other areas, that now what we just want to do is build on that. Not everything is going to come back to Houston. In fact, we are probably as an organization going to begin to look to decentralize and really begin to bring capabilities and talent into the local regions. And that includes the Middle East. Chris, on that note, I'd like to thank you for your time and for sharing your very interesting views and insights. And I hope that all our listeners have found it as interesting as I have. So good day to you and thanks. Thank you very much, Bob. Stay safe and well. Thank you for listening to this Learning from Leaders podcast from Sea Trade Maritime. You've been listening to ABS Chairman, President and CEO Chris Wernicke talk me through his view of the future, including regulatory hurdles, alternative fuels, the importance of cybersecurity and the specific Greek and Middle East markets. 